Here's a question for you, and it relates to today's episode. How old as a process is pottery, which essentially is the formation of vessels and other objects using clay and other raw materials fired at high temperatures to give them a hard and durable form? When I started researching today's interview with artist extraordinaire and potter Kevin O'Keefe from Mississippi, I honestly would have missed the answer to that question of how long pottery as a process has been around by at least 15,000 years. Pottery is one of the oldest human inventions. A figurine discovered in the Czech Republic dates back to 29,000 BC. Pottery vessels discovered in China date back to 18,000 BC. And pottery artifacts have been found in Japan estimated to be from about 10,500 BC. So raise your hands if you answered correctly, and congratulations. Today's guest, Kevin O'Keefe, probably knew the answer to that question. Kevin not only keeps an age-old tradition alive through his pottery and artwork, but he makes useful and beautiful tools like one-of-a-kind sake cups, incense holders, candle holders, which are carried in top drawer shops in the United States. I'm Tom Pollard. This is Tools for Nomads. Tools for Nomads is brought to you by Top Drawer. We'd love to know where you're listening from today. Please take a moment to let us know so we can learn more about you in this growing community of like-minded souls. This describes Kevin O'Keefe's pottery. It's of iridescent glazes with copper reds or crystalline blues. They shimmer through the micro-crinkling of various types of reflective surfaces. Raindrops of molten glaze are purposely frozen in time like glass, where they glow and glisten in candlelight. Kevin keeps alive the magical things that can happen on a potter's wheel, and then he tests every conceivable limit of a kiln that he built in his backyard, which burns to temperatures of nearly 2,000 degrees. Looking at his work, I became interested in how someone like Kevin becomes a full-time artist, why someone would take that leap of faith into a world where so many artists struggle to survive. During our interview, Kevin talks often about his old friend Andy. Andy, or Andrew Jessup, is the man behind the magical and illuminating design of the top drawer shops. Also from Mississippi, Andrew, or Andy as Kevin calls him, and Kevin go way back. And their friendship, as you will see, is a big part of Kevin's path toward becoming a full-time professional potter. And I didn't even know this was possible. They actually melted kilns, which are supposed to be the furnaces that do the melting, not the things that actually melt themselves. Here's my conversation with Kevin O'Keefe from his home near the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. You did talk about travel and hiking up the East Coast. So you did a through hike of the Appalachian Trail. Do I have that correct? You're, that's a big yeah. part of your life. Yeah, that that was a really big, uh, really big change for me. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll tie this back into art. You know, in high school, my teacher saw something. Uh, Joyce King, wonderful woman, got me, got me involved, uh, got me into college, went through a 
a number of colleges where I developed my skills. And at some point, I had some really big failures. And uh, I'll, call, I'll call them learning lessons. Uh, but I had lost an entire year's worth of work in one firing. And I was like, I'm done. I gave everything away. I walked away and I went and got a job uh, repairing cell phones, if, uh, if you can believe it. But I was really good at fixing cell phones, uh, just that real intricate, intricate work, the detailed work. And I did that for about 12, 12 plus years. And it came down to, I was so frustrated with life because I just, in, inside me, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to play music. I didn't want to work, you know, under fluorescence. And, uh, and I was telling my brother, I said, look, I just, I feel like I have to get away from life. Like the only way I can get out of this ditch is just to sell everything I own and, and walk away. And then he said, you know, he was a Eagle Scout outdoorsman sailor. And he goes, well, what about the Appalachian Trail? You know, he's like 2,200 miles long, 14 states. Uh, you have safety in the trail. And it was like, as soon as he said it, it just settled in my soul. And I was like, I have to do that. And uh, I think that was January 1st. And by March 3rd, uh, with some miraculous interventions, I was on trail and I had never even heard of it before. I, I unboxed my water filter on, on uh, in Amapola State Park trying to figure out how to make it work. Like at the first shelter, I'm like, how does this, you know, water pump work? Oh. But it changed my life. It changed, it changed my life. And, you know, we, we won't go into that because I'll talk about that for weeks. But, uh, but I came back. I came back and I just said uh, with this breath of life and, and I said, I don't want to go back to work. I I had a kiln, I had a studio, I uh, had the skill, and I just I, I it was funny. I had I had this idea. I said all I need to do is get in ten stores. If I get in ten stores, and I'm thinking I was in the Ogden in New Orleans. They carried my work for a while. Um, I had done some work with MoMA uh, in New Orleans, and I just figured I would hit some galleries and shops on the uh, uh, down here in the southeast, and uh, if I could get 10 stores, a few pieces a week out the door, then I could make my baseline to, uh, to start building. And literally that week, Andy called me and he goes, hey, do you think you know how to make sake cups? And I was like, it's just a little cup, right? It's just a little cup. And, uh, and he goes, well, look, we got, we got I, think, uh, I think it was 11, 11 stores. And he goes, uh, start making some cups and let's see what we got. And that's when... He introduced me to Top Drawer, and it just seemed, again, like this divine intervention. And here we are today, you know, I think 14 or 15 stores in, and just couldn't be a better pick-me-up to life, you know. Wow, that's so cool. I, I, I knew the backstory of that a little bit, but that thank you for laying that out there real quickly. So you did the, if you did the entire AT, and I know that you did, the AT cross is about... 10 miles away from where I live right now. And um, mm -hmm. so what was your trail name, by the way? Uh, it was uh, Good Pilgrim. Good Pilgrim. Good Pilgrim. Good Pilgrim uh, on it, the trail. It, started, it started out as a Pilgrim. You know, I, everyone has their story, but I was, you know, the trip, obviously, because of my worldview, I, I had this idea of this miraculous, you know, des uh, destiny. And um, 
So I was telling the story, the similitudes of the story of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, um, which my father read to us when we were kids. You know, he had this colorful book version. And, and uh, you know, so the story's always stuck in this journey, right? This guy that begins this journey. And, and I was telling of the similitudes of, of how I felt my journey was uh, coinciding with, with that story, that childhood story. And everybody was like, you're Pilgrim. Your pilgrim. Well, we're going up the trail, and you know everybody's like, "What's your trail name?" You know, "Oh, I'm Pilgrim." And they're like, "Oh, you don't want that trail name." No, you're like, "Really? No, you don't want that." And we're like, "Why?" And they're like, "Well, there was, you know, this Pilgrim that was really bad out here," and uh, and then we would go a little bit further into the next town. You know, "I'm Pilgrim." They're like, "Oh, wait, no, like, no, really?" <laughs> and and every 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 time we would go a little bit further the story would build and, and develop. And the next thing you know, we were literally in Damascus, uh, quarter, quarter ways up, Damascus, Virginia. And we walk into town and it was like, no, this is the story. This guy Pilgrim, uh, literally like a few years before, messed with everybody to the point of, I think, threatening to, uh, to hurt people during trail days, like mass, mass hurt. And he had, he had every law enforcement looking for him, like trying to find out what his identity was. Cause no one knows, like you just live by trail names. So here I am like on trail, Hey, I'm Pilgrim. And then, and so then we just started saying, I'm Pilgrim, the good one. And my, my trail family at that time was like, no, this is Pilgrim, the good one. And, uh, and then, you know, good Pilgrim. So, but it, it ended after trail days because the guy never made it out of Damascus. I, I guess the year he hiked, which was a few years before me. Epic trail name story. Good pilgrim. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's that's a that's great backstory. Thank and you I, and, for sharing that. And I and I'd always clarify it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm good. I'm just <laughs> not the I'm just not the bad one. You, so, you're better yeah. than the other one. So that's good. Right. If, so you do the you do the AT, you come back, and as you had said, it was like some intervention or something happened. You get this phone call from your friend, Andrew Jessup, who for you know familiarity you have known as Andy, Andy life. Buddy and, Andy. And and boom, you're making sake cups for the top drawer stores. And this might be a really cool kind of way to jump into a little bit of it, because over your left shoulder, I'm looking at a kiln. The part about your artwork and the pottery you make is that everything's different. Oh, your stuff is so unique. It's one of a kind. And so is that how did you develop that style? We can get back into the sake cups, I suppose. But how do you get started? in Well, uh, well, those are two very, very different questions. I don't know how I became a potter. I know that in high school, I took uh, a lot of art classes because I just didn't enjoy the more brainier activities. I didn't like history and science and math. I I was a, a big struggle. School was a big struggle. Um, come to find socializing is a big struggle for me. So, so I just tried to get in as many art classes and gym classes and, and that I, that I could get in. And it was my teacher that, uh, I think they had some, they had some pottery wheels in the room and no one ever touched them. And I just said, that looks intriguing. I'm going to give it a try. And I threw that, that time in school, I threw five pieces, which I still have today. They're, they're boxed up 
And I mean, if you looked at them, you'd be like, okay, yeah, those, I don't know what you'd think, but, but yeah, like I threw five pieces and she, she said, you know, you got like, there's something here, there's something here. And, Mm. and they, uh, my, my teacher conspired with my mom behind my back, you know, to, uh, to, to collect all my work and submit it to uh, a local college here, William Carey. And, uh, and they had done that. I got awarded a, a, a very big scholarship. And, um, and at that point it was like, no, like my parents were like, you're going, you're going. It was either there or the military. And, uh, and that was not about to happen. So, so I went to, went to William Carey and then it just, it just developed. Um, I took all the different art classes uh, sculptor, sculpture, stone, wood, painting, graphic design, uh, pottery, but uh, clay was the one was the one medium that just uh, I just couldn't stop growing. Like I I wanted to do everything. Like I feel like it's just it's the it's the creative it's the creative side of of individuals. I just got loaded with it, and uh, and clay clay just became so natural. Uh, with the touch, the the texture, the way it moves, the way you can capture uh, every little impression, no other medium does that. And uh, and and that that was before even the whole kiln stuff. Like I only made uh, all through college. I I only made work, and I would allow like the studio, the the other studio students to fire it. Like they would load the kilns and fire the work and. So, uh, so none of the glazes, none of the finishes were never really impressive. It's just whatever I threw on, but I, I just really dove into the form and how clay, uh, like what, what the limits of clay were, you know, pushing the thinness, the, the bigness, the, you know, the, the, the most volume. And I would just lose my fail rate was so high because I would push clay to that limit and you never know the limit of something until it breaks. And so I would just constantly break work um, just to see what it could do. And as the skills improved, I got into a lot of trouble. You know, I was, tr- I was troubled and uh, left William Carey for another a Baptist college. William Carey was a Baptist uh, college. And I went to Mississippi college where they would accept all of my credits. And uh, it just, it had to work that way. And I was there for one semester and I was the only ceramic student. And uh, out of 144 art students, I was the only ceramic student. And my buddy, Jonathan, uh, uh, who also is just a beautiful in- individual. You'll never know him because he's also locked in the woods in North Mississippi. Um, and he's a sculptor. He's the only sculptor in the school. And so both of us just, you know, uh, kindred spirits made work. The, uh, our professors gave us the freedom to do what we want. And so, so William Carey was uh, the first school. They were, they were more into formalism. So it was, it was, uh, you know, form over function, form over function. Then I went to Mississippi College where they gave me the freedom to just test those limits. And uh, and I did that. Well, uh, the second semester, they were telling me I had uh, like two years of language and all this uh, music and choir, or, you know, these uh, the secondary, the secondary education. And and what I realized is like not to down them because I feel like my position is very rare. 
uh, most people don't make it as artists. You know, I think I think I'd heard somewhere with no, you know, just what I'd heard that uh, like less than three percent of individuals that get a degree in art will actually make a living with that uh, with that degree. So Mississippi College was giving all their students a secondary foundation to fall back on teaching or, you know, teaching. That's pretty much what they do. Uh, and I said, I'm not going to fail like I'm I want to be an artist and uh and I was two weeks into the semester and I dropped out uh ran down to southern uh southern miss in Hattiesburg which was where Andy was and walked in I think it was like my junior junior year I had two years left I was a super senior a five-year five-year artist and uh rolled up into rolled up into southern and they were completely conceptual like their entire uh, our department was hinged on this idea of just self-expression and and you, like creating a voice. And what I what I had witnessed is they weren't giving them the formalism to build upon the foundation of of material and tools and and aesthetics. It was just like you know they would have the project like found object um political stance and nature go make something you know and so then people would go out there and just find junk lane on the side of the roads and yarn bits and they would assemble these things and and then they would like have to tell what this thing is representing and all i was looking at was just you know a pile of sticks and yarn and and all that well i had come from two other schools that gave me this training the uh, this formalist training and so then when I interjected the conceptual aspect, um, I know, no, you know, it's just my words, but my, my senior project body of work was, in my opinion, just, I don't even know how I created it. It's, uh, it's so detailed and meticulous. It's uh, these massive ceramic rings that are literally an eighth of an inch thin, these huge rings with steel rods running through them, all laid out in mat in mathematically perfect formulas that the 15th century painters used to load the canvas of hot spots. So, so like uh, Piera de Francesca, uh, if I even say his name right, uh, there's a piece um, that I don't remember the name of, but he spent two years painting it. And he spent two years loading the canvas with mathematical hotspots before paint ever touched the canvas. And when I had solved that in my Italian Renaissance class, um, my first thought was, how can I apply this to sculpture? And, and then that's when I created this body of work. Well, what I had realized was the, the, the just the sheer retentiveness of detail that though it was very impressive, it was just very stale. Like the pieces are impressive, but I was looking at it and I was just like, it looked like a machine made it, right? It just looked like, like I could make a hundred more of them identical because I was, I was that meticulous in, in knowing my material, knowing what I wanted and going for it. And when I met Andy, Andy was like, a massive influence in my in my life like when i met andy he was just that like he loved clay 
and he just expressed himself with these just gigantic, um, almost creature-esque entities. And, and I was just like, oh, I, I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't handle it. And, and so we got out of school. Uh, long story, little less long. We come down to the coast. He moves down to the coast. We had no plan. Like, I had no idea what he was doing. Uh, he just came down to the coast, opened up a little gallery, uh, a beautiful little space. And um, we started building kilns because he was the guy that fired the kilns it, it, uh, to go back. He was the guy that fired the kilns at Southern. So he was firing my work and I was making the work. Uh, so we both moved down. We start building kilns. He starts teaching me about how to fire, you know, the oxidation reduction and, and, uh, and heat. And we, we melted kiln after kiln. We'd, uh, we'd build these little, uh, uh, you can see them if you look at an electric conversion, electric to gas conversion kiln. People take the electrics that I think we're all familiar with and they'll gut the electronics, throw in an a inlet and an outlet flue. And uh, you just plug a burner in there. And if, even if you don't know what you're doing, like you'll hit temperature, like you'll hit something, you know, something's going to melt. And uh, so we, we probably melted eight, eight kilns. And every time we would kill the kiln, we would just build a bigger and a better one. And we started building. I got, I got documentations of all of our kilns that we built, just insane little projects. Half of them never worked. All of them had problems. But that's that's kind of my entire backstory of just coming to this place of of just being being an artist, working with my hands, loving clay. The the individual expression came from a single piece. But the first body of work I showed with Andy, I would throw these multiple pieces. This one behind me, I think, is made out of three or four pieces. And then I assembled them together. So I would throw a base that was just looked like a bowl. And then I would throw a, like a, a cylinder and then I would collapse the cylinder. And then I would throw other cylinders to go on top of that. And then once they set up, I would assemble them so that they looked like these long, tall pieces that just would squat and crumple and, and the most pleasing way, like the folds of the clay just looks like fabric, you know, fabric might twist. And uh, I just, I fell in love with this body of work. That was my first body of work. And then came the goat. And the goat is one piece. I had this idea, you know, this piece had all these folds in it. I packed, uh, all of our kilns are salt kilns which again, I'll get into, we induce salt into the kiln and that creates a, a very appealing surface uh, texture. Um, but I had this uh, wild idea. I said, I'm going to pack salt into the folds of the piece. And so I put this thing in the kiln, big, beautiful, perfect, meticulous piece, uh, exactly what I wanted it to be. And I fired it and the entire thing just melts to pieces like not to pieces but just like melts down and you see these channels where salt liquefied and mm. volatized the clay into these rivers and channels and then like the plates where which had these flowing soft folds were just they looked like plate tectonics just ripping apart you know, like scales and some sort of like dinosaur creature like insane 
And I was so upset. I was so heartbroken. I like just ruined my peace. And I call Andy up. He's living in the gallery and uh, he's living in his gallery. I call him up and I said, Andy, I ruined this piece, you know, this big, beautiful piece. And he goes, bring it by. I brought it over and I'm like just distraught. And he's just looking at it and he's like, just, just look at it a little longer. And I just stopped talking, just started watching it and started looking at it. And all of a sudden it was just this instant understanding of the desire to continue to look at it where the other work I'd made, it was just like, I'd made it and it was gone. Like I, I could do it again. It was, it didn't impress me, but all of a sudden this piece had its own identity that I didn't make, I didn't create. Like it was, it's almost like I was just honored to be a part of the development, but it ultimately, you know, this piece, like it ultimately became what it wanted to be and then when i opened the kiln like i had no idea what to expect my expectations were crushed andy you know my my guide at the time uh and probably forever he was like just just take it give it a minute and it was that it was that piece that then created an entire new direction of work where i started just loading these pieces with any type of like the salt is a big thing but I would you know fire faster I would fire hotter I would I would do anything I could to get the piece to just say something and that was my artwork and that was that was my art and and then to to finalize that that first question uh this this style this overall style that's all I made was sculptures and when Andy said, hey, do you want to make sake cups? I had a deep, a deep disdain for production pottery. Mm-hmm. I, I could never imagine myself being like, you know, this little machine, just like pump, 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 pump. Uh, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I said, well, if I'm going to make production work, you know, the mugs, mugs and, and uh, sake cups and whatever, I want each piece to at least have some sort of individual identity, you know, as it should. And so what I ended up creating um, was a process. And it was that process that gave the work the ability to to have its own voice. And, you know, every cup is identical. They're all one or two inches. They all got mouths and walls and feet. Uh, but it look at look at the identity of humans like we all have every one of us has the same uh assets for the most part but once you open your mouth once you walk once you cook eggs like whatever you do like you're going to lose that and so these pieces these pieces are uh to me this uh like they're their own little entities they're these own little people their own little characteristics and in that I, I have to celebrate what most people consider flaws. I look at, I see people see my work and they go, what happened to that thing? You know, like, did it fall? Did it break? Did it whatever, you know? And that's a, that's a big response um, from my work. And, and in reality, like, isn't that how a lot of people look at humans? Like we look at people with mental disabilities or physical abnormalities and, 
and uh, or awkwardness or whatever. And and we want to we want to highlight those things and be like, that's a problem. But it's like if we all got rid of everything that we called a, an abnormality or a, a, a disability, um, we would all look like the same. There would be nothing special. And so through this body of work, I've learned, uh, you know, it's taught me to to celebrate those those characteristics that you have that you think are flaws, because that's what makes you unique and you an individual. And uh, I think the work speaks for itself. Like I've maybe never said this to anyone before, especially publicly. But I think when people see my work, you probably don't like 95 percent of what you look at. But then there's that one where you're like, this is my cup. This is my cup. And it just connects with you. I get it. It's really, I really get it. It's like I learned. That's, that's where. I feel like I understand the, the, the genesis of this whole an evolution of of how you arrived at this and you're not you're not fully arrived i mean this is a process and 10 years you might be a whole different guy a different artist and everything um kind of one of the essences a part of what we're endeavoring to do in this podcast and and in these interviews is talk about these these skills and or, or preserving them or at least giving life to these skills that have been passed down through generations so you you said something back kind of in the beginning of this explanation that that you and Andy started building kilns and and testing small ones and taking the electronics out of one and you know putting an air vent in it and and you know putting a flame into one side and um and you and you melted kilns so for the person listening or watching the idea of melting a kiln, the kiln is supposed to be the thing that does the melting or at least pottery. So you actually over, you, you got the kiln so hot that the whole thing just melted out. So how does it get too hot? And this is, you're not going to expect this one. So how many times has the fire department been called on you for melting a kiln or blowing flames out the top of the kiln uh when me and andy were building kilns we had these little octagon ifd kilns uh we throw them together throw some pots in there stick a stick a burner in there and just melt everything and uh all we cared about was the work like the kiln is a tool i'm not selling a kiln i'm not you know i don't care about kilns the inside shell is hard brick so it can withstand the heat that and the force of elements we're putting in there the if the outside of the kiln is ifb so it's like uh more for insulating because you could not stand next to that thing if it was uh just a hard brick it would radiate so much heat you would literally just uh you you couldn't do it like you'd have to have special suits so so the inside shell is to protect the kiln the outside shell is to insulate uh the outside shells to insulate the inside so it's a physics, it's a physics game. It's just, it, it, it's a, it's an act of love to come out here and to fire this thing. And uh, I always say it's, it's probably likened to driving a rally car. You know, those like rally cars where you're just running in circles in a mud pit, just running into everything. Like that's what it's like to fire this kiln. You're listening to my May 2023 interview with Kevin O'Keefe from his home and pottery studio in Mississippi. 
Tools for Nomads is brought to you by Top Drawer. Top Drawer makes durable, sustainable tools for creatives like you who work to make the world better. Tools for travel, for writing, accessories for everyday carry. From pens to Japanese house shoes to journals, amazing photo albums, finely crafted paper, bags, eyewear, handkerchiefs, lighters, keychains. Check them out at topdrawershop.com or visit one of their dozen plus meticulously outfitted shops in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, Berkeley, Chicago, New York, and Tokyo. topdrawershop.com. If you stop into one of the stores, please let them know you listen to the podcast. Now back to my conversation with Kevin O'Keefe. So when you put that, whatever your pot or the the sake cup or your product into the to the kiln, the process of heating it really hot hardens it, and then what usually melts, kind of a glaze on the outside. Is, is mm-hmm. there some chemical reaction happening or is it be like, what, how the hell does it go from something you could squish between your fingers to, you know, something you could, you know, keep mm-hmm. for a hundred years on a shelf and use it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that, that would be a really great question to research um, on Google. <laughs> from, uh, <laughs> from, uh, from some more, uh, some more intelligence. I don't know. No, I, I know it works. Very, so we'll just look. I know it works. I know it works. Uh, in a very, in a very layman type term, um, yes, clay, clay is uh, clay and glaze. Uh, so clay is your your structure that you're building upon. Uh, glaze is the finish. And uh, at some point in history, they said all clay needs a finish. So you can fire just raw clay and have have uh, just this raw rough piece of clay, but it uh, but at some point they said it needs a surface finish, and that could be as simple as a single material that that melts at a lower point and then it coats the surface. So clay mm-hmm. is primary clay and glaze are made of uh, silica. It's a silica, a feldspar, and a and a clay um, like a ball clay, and the way I think, uh, the way I see it is silica itself melts at 3000 degrees. Like, and that's, that's sand, like sand on the beach down here. We got a lot of sand, that sand, if you put it in a kiln, it will not melt, you know, because you just can't get that hot. So they have to add a fluxing agent, which is like a feldspar and, and various fluxes uh, that they have. And they're meticulously designed to, to have specific melting points. So those fluxes help aid in the melting of the silica so that the silica melts into glass. And then that glass, you know, flows in between the, uh, the little clay particles, be it a ball clay, which is more of a, uh, and these are like microscopic levels, little round balls that are just, you know, tightly matrixed together and have gaps versus porcelain, which, uh, which is a plate-like, it's a plate-like, uh, substrate and so you get these very tight forms and that's why porcelain you can get uh if you fire it right like you can make it translucent you know because those platelets will align perfect and you know it's just a beautiful clay Um, Mm. but clay and glaze clay uh, clay and glaze are nearly the same materials 
except in clay, you have more ball clay, less silica, and, and less flux. And then with glaze, you have little to no ball clay, and you have a lot of silica and then a lot of flux. So it's all the same material. The kiln, like I said, the kiln is the same material as the sake cups, except the level of clay to, to flux to, to glass is different so that you raise that melting temperature, the melting point. So these bricks aren't going to melt. Some years ago, when we first uh, had this kiln built, I had a, I met a, a buddy down the road. He, I said, bring some pottery. We'll fill this kiln up. And he brought stuff that he'd made like 20 years ago, 10 or 20 years ago from college. And we put like 50 of his pieces in the kiln. And they were like, oh, 15, like, the, the, range, the range of numbers, it goes from odd numbers to one to two to 10, like that direction. He was like, it was like 05 clay or 015 clay. Like it was super low clay. It turned to lava. It turned to lava in my kiln and hit every one of his cups melted into a pool of lava and just rained through the entire kiln. And I about killed him. I was like, <laughs> I like you'll, you'll be lucky if you ever set foot in my kiln again. But we're really, really good friends. Uh, I got some really interesting work. I, I had a mug. So cool. I had a mug and the lava rained into the mug, filled it up. And so it was a, a perfect, beautiful mug. And it looked like it was just filled with coffee, like this glazed coffee. <laughs> totally useless. Except for <laughs> except for the expressive, expressive quality. That's what you get for putting his stuff on the top. You could have put him on the bottom. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's what I get for telling them that they better be sure. Like, yeah. like I'm very care. I'm very careful now. If I let anyone in the kiln, like I tell them, like you better yeah. make sure. We've got the how it happens and how you got to this place and all. And you have elaborated a lot on on this creative process and and what's going on and and you really do put your heart and soul into it a little bit. It's kind of like when people are painting, if they're a painter or playing guitar or something, it's like you're, you, do you go into this zone? Are you, is this, do all outside distractions fade away? Is there, do you put on symphony or do you put on like thrash metal or you listen to the birds? Like, what what's happening with the soul of Kevin O'Keefe at, at through this artistic process, or is is there just a? Are you in the cosmos? What what happens? Mm -hmm. Man, that's a that's a that's a very 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 good question. Um, so so for me, there is some elements that I can't work with music. Uh, I love working with music. Um, that's why I don't record much. You know. Uh, it's because I can't record and have music, I guess, because of copyright law. So I just choose not to record because I really need that, that, uh, you know, that, that flow in my ear, um, the rhythm. And so I think where, I think one thing is that you're maybe hitting on is this idea of inspiration. Like, where do you get that inspiration to get in and to make? Um, and I, I think it's less about the inspiration and more about like a biorhythm. Like we all have this biorhythm that that we live by. Most people like you don't ever even really notice it. 
But when it comes to to some really detailed um, and and hyper timed uh, activities like golf, racquetball, tennis, uh, pottery, um, uh, timing is it makes all the difference. And our bio, our bodies have this natural tempo. And so some days, like you come out here to work and, you know, everything could be right. But if that biorhythm's off, like you just, you just can't do it. Like, yeah, you can throw a pot, but you're just not in it. And, mm-hmm. and you're not in that flow state that you were talking about. But then there's those magical moments where, where the timing is on, the breathing is on, the wheel, the movement, and, and, um, and you just, you just in it. And at that point, it really just comes down to knowing the material. And, and so the clay, I said, I'm a potter. So the clay is the most important element, you know, um, in connection to who I am and in my hands as the tools. So when I start throwing, it could take literally, um, you know, a few hours before I get into that state because you're just, you're just kind of hashing through it, getting the feel, you're learning the clay. Um, if I have a new clay body, uh, it will easily take me a hundred pounds before, uh, before I know, I feel I know the clay, like as a relationship. And, uh, so right now, a lot of the work you're seeing in these videos that I sent you, uh, they're all in the bis kiln, just hanging out, ready to get fired, uh, ready to get bis to go through that conversion state. Uh, they go through that conversion from clay into a hardened, vitrified stone, um, and that that's called quartz conversion. But for me, that that clay that I'm using, I'm only uh, 50 pounds in, and I'm still just struggling with it. Just you know, every now and again, you get these moments where you you just have that connection but then there's others where it just fights you along the way and it's like i don't want to play i don't want to participate leave me alone and of course it's just mud you know it's all in my head so that that state of mind is very important but i find that it has more to do with uh you know this idea of a biorhythm and mm. uh and for me i i have discovered a way to test it to see if I'm on time. And that technique is called tap centering. I was taught tap centering by Peter Anderson, uh, John Anderson, uh, Peter Anderson's son, who uh, owns, uh, he's the, the, the next in line to the Anderson uh, uh, pottery here on the coast, uh, world-renowned uh, potter. He taught me how to tap center on a jiggerware, making jiggerware. So that's like, pie plates and dishes using the arm that just pumps them out and then when you go to trim you set the piece on the wheel and the wheel's spinning because you're you're in production you don't want to stop um you got to keep moving so the wheel's spinning you put the pot down and then it's moving because you can't set it centered and then you just start counting that movement so the pot's just rolling rolling on the wheel and you're just looking at it and you're just like one two three four and then you have to pop it and you pop it just right to get it to knock a little closer to center at that exact moment in time that it needs to be popped. It's a very rare place to be is on time as a potter. And so knowing that biorhythm or having that feeling, um, it's just something I don't know. Uh, I'd imagine you learn it just by doing it. You know, you practice it. Practice makes perfect. 
Um, but for me, I, I did it with the Andersons. He taught me and I just, I had it. I figured it out. Very important. Very, very great question. The, the flow state, uh, it's very rare. I'll, I'll just say it's very rare, especially here in South Mississippi. Um, working can be very, very grueling because the heat, you know, this, I have an open air studio. These doors stay open. And so it'll get over a hundred degrees in there and I'm just sweating from head to toe. And, uh, maybe one day I'll save up for a, a an AC, but, uh, for now, like, uh, I love the natural, I love being the most natural that I can in this environment. And I don't want to change that, which means the only thing I can do is to move up by you. Andy keeps saying he's going to build me a kiln. So, okay, well, that's it. Then let's, let's hold him to it. To see Kevin's work in person, walk into any top drawer shop and you'll find his unique and one of a kind sake cups, incense burners and candle holders. They are exquisite. Be sure to pick several of them up and see how different and unique they are. You can visit Kevin's website at kevinjohnokeefe.com or check out his YouTube channel at Kevin John O'Keefe. These links will be in the show notes as well. Thanks for visiting Tools for Nomads, an intimate look into the lives and habits of passionate and creatively prolific people like Kevin O'Keefe. Wherever you're listening or watching, I hope you'll subscribe. Tools for Nomads is brought to you by Top Drawer, a top drawer, life is about loving and living intentionally, where the things we carry matter to us. They impact our productivity, our well-being, and even our identity. Top drawer combines the quality of craftsmanship of our grandparents' generation with the drive for independence, function, and stylish sustainability. It results in a collection of tools that help you do your best work wherever you may be. Visit TopDrawerShop.com or visit one of their dozen-plus meticulously outfitted shops in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, Berkeley, Chicago, New York, and Tokyo. TopDrawerShop.com Thanks for visiting. I'm Tom Pollard. See you next time on Tools for Nomads.